0: to the last thing I saw, this is our talk about True False, the True False Film Fest in Columbia, Missouri. Um, We are back from True False, um, although uh, after this talk, you'll hear a little segment that was recorded at True False, an interview. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but now we'll just go through a bunch of movies that we saw while we were there, and I'm pleased, the we, that I keep referring to mysteriously, is completed by uh, Mr. Eric Hines. Hello, Eric. Hey,
1: Nick. It's good to be back.
0: This was a full week experience for you, of Fools.
1: Yeah, I've done that a few times uh, for various reasons, but this time I was a, a guest of uh, the Murray Center for Documentary Journalism at University of Missouri for a few days leading into the festival, and they also have um, something you're familiar with, the conference leading right before the festival and also overlapping a bit. Uh, with the beginning of it called uh, based on a true story or boats I mean a really valuable couple of days where basically it's uh, sessions with visiting filmmakers in conversation with journalists and writers and creative ways of putting together you know, rather than just straight panels kind of creative alignments etc um, and uh, I did a conversation with Reed Davenport the director of I didn't see you there about his uh student films which is great really interesting to him have you know a, a filmmaker win best director at Sundance and then kind of look back at at the the juvenilia as it were and and how that you know heavily influenced in, in unexpected and unexpected ways the work that he hmm. in the new film but the, you know and then so that was through the Wednesday and then the festival starts up on Thursday um so yeah I, I definitely put my time in Columbia Missouri but also Missed it. It's been two years since I was there. I um, had been there every every year for a decade, so it was it was really you know missing 2021 because though the festival did happen last May, as you know, it was limited um, in terms of how many people came um, and uh, limited in, in terms of the support that they were going to make for anybody to sort of be you know come from out of town and participate. So it was great to be back after two years, and so it it, it felt I don't know how it felt like to you, but it felt very much like. Like nothing had ever happened, <laughs> um, even though <laughs> yeah, everything had happened.
0: No, it's funny. It, it is. It is true to a certain extent. It was just sort of picking up where where we where we left off, and people coming together. And I, I guess it felt almost like a relief in the air that you know that that, that could happen. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously, you know, people were were careful and everything, but it's had the kind of free and easy and happy mood that I associate with that festival and that probably anyone who hears about the festival who hasn't been uh, is probably sick of hearing about but is you know that's they've really managed to maintain this kind of community there in spirit yeah and yeah I also was last there in person in 2020 uh, which was really on the eve of the pandemic uh, shut down the first and then yeah, last year was was remote, so uh, people who are interested can listen to an episode where I talked about the remote experience yep, yep. of True False uh, with with someone, with Cosmo, Jorgenheim, who went in person. Uh, I don't even know how he managed to do that, but it happened. Uh, but this time, we, we, we were both there in person, and yep. there was quite a bit to see. And talking beforehand, I think one thing we were particularly struck by was... The slate of Eastern European uh, and and Russian films, yeah, yeah, uh, you know the phenomenon where movies that obviously weren't made yesterday can change uh, as as you see them in light of the current you know uh, Russian invasion yeah. of, of Ukraine, yeah. Um, so that was that was huge, and that includes the the monumental uh, Mr Landsbergus, which we've talked about before, but now feels even I don't know more significant,
1: yeah. No, I, I think it does, and you know we, we are we're both appreciators of of that of that film, and I'm glad that people are catching up to it. It was really great to have so many people, from what I gather, at the two screenings in Columbia for it and be excited about it. And it probably was one of the most talked about films of the festival, which says which is pretty incredible for a four hour plus yeah. film. But yeah, I think the part of that is that there may have been some extra interest because of of events. Not that um, the events in Mr. Lansburyus are Easily mapped onto the current situation, but it is certainly a um, a very exhaustive and kind of just remarkably fluid uh, representation of of revolution, you know, of, of change, mm-hmm. of uh, and also of you know kind of standing up to at that point the, the Soviet uh, occupier. And we're certainly looking at an, an attempt, at least, of, of occupation again here in 2022. So, um, I, you know, I, it wasn't constructed for this purpose, as you're saying, like it was made before this context, but there is something in there that is almost like a primer for how to gain independence and begin a democracy, you know? Mm. Um, and I don't think that's going to go out of style in terms of being something that we, we need, um, again, it's not made for that purpose, but it's hard not to see that as a part of what Sergei Luznitz is doing in terms of being that detailed about something that happened that long ago. There's an implicit instructive quality, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I I really like that framing of it because it's yeah you can watch it and and think about. I feel like I always compare things to Frederick Wiseman, but in the sense that Wiseman films kind of model a way of communally constructing society and institutions. This movie also shows like a communal and collective endeavor yeah. um, with a leader who leads as little top down as you can when you're the the effective head of state, um, right. just in the sense of setting this example of cool and collected, you know, firm and kind of rhetorically stirring, but not you know emptily so, yeah. and really not playing into the game of the power relations with the Soviet union that are expected. And I agree. I think it's, it's not a good idea to map it exactly, but Lesnitz is definitely prescient in how he put it together and even departing from some of his own, departing from some of his own habits and having this kind of sit down debriefing with Landsbergis in interviews, uh, direct interviews. And also, you know, I guess it's worth mentioning that in the past, week or two. Um, another movie by him has gotten a uh, release scheduled for next month, yep. uh, Donbass, which was another movie that was extremely prescient, so much so that I feel like that's part of why people didn't quite glom onto what it was doing. Um, and that would be a whole other discussion about that movie.
1: Um, well, it's funny, if I recall, you know, and, and I know you and I both uh, love that film. Oh, love that film. It's a weird, weird thing to say, but I think that's a significant <laughs> yeah. film. Um, yeah. I recall, I remember that year was, a, was the first thing I saw at Cannes. Like I landed and went and saw that film. And I remember hearing kind of grumbling from other critics and folks about how it was just so miserable. Like there's something about it that was so kind of like outlandishly, aggressively, <laughs> right. you know, kind of almost sort of uh, circus-like atmosphere of awfulness. and And yet the whole premise was that it was based on actual footage he had seen actual things he encountered on YouTube that no one really looked at and the news wasn't sort of picking up on, but it's stuff that was happening. And I think that kind of response in the weeks that we're living through right now is kind of fading away. I mean, there's just, it's not, it's no longer hard to imagine what he's depicting in Donbass considering what's happening. So yeah.
0: yeah. I just want to insert a plug here. So, um, Eric doesn't have to. Uh, which is that you can see Don Bass like right away as part of First Look Festival. Actually, I guess part of a prelude to the first this edition New year's edition of First Look Festival. Looking back at past years of programming at the Museum of the Moving Image.
1: You know we're showing just five films from from previous First Looks uh, this coming weekend, but we're also with that being Putin's Witnesses by Vitaly Monsky and yes. um you have no idea how much I love you by Pavel Zinsky and uh, three songs for Benazir, which is nominated for an Oscar um, this year, and of course the first ever film at First Look opening night, uh, 2011, which is uh, Almeida's Folly by uh, Shanta oh, Um But in yes. addition to all that, because we're showing Don Bass, and because what's happening uh, around us is we're showing Maidan uh, as well, the, those needs is Maidan, and playing those two films together, because much like Landsbergis you know, winds up being, you know, kind of maybe a little bit less directly um, instructive for the moment. Maidan being kind of the beginning of, you know, contemporary Ukrainian democratic self-rule seems like mm-hmm. an important thing to go back to as well.
0: Yeah. So yeah, lucky lucky New Yorkers can come see those films. I mean, that sort of naturally brings us to other Easter European films at, uh, at True False this year. There are two of them that yeah, really change before your eyes as you're watching, and one of them is Guest 2.
1: Yeah, Guess 2. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and just for those you know listening along who've not seen printout of the film titles, it is G-E-S-2. We're calling it right. Guest 2. I have no idea if that's a proper way of saying the title, but uh, it is non-narrative container basically of little mini portraits and sequences shot in and in some cases with people who work at this big uh, industrial site uh, that's been converted into an art space in Moscow. It's visually at times visually like incredible. At other times it's very very funny. Um, At other times it's you know kind of leans into utopian visions of cities and you know it's not a long film and it is one of the more entertaining documentaries I've seen the last year or so. Uh, and there's certain sequences that happen in this that I kept hearing about in advance of seeing it. So that's, mm-hmm. where I was like, okay, I have to see this. Cause they, they keep talking about this guy who's guarding a Kandinsky painting, you know, that is like incredible. I gotta see that <laughs> or I got to see yeah. this, this smokestack installation sequence, you know? Um, So it's, you know, it was, it was the film of the festival that had the most intrigue in terms of, what is this film and, and and why is why are these sequences in it?
0: I think that's part of what I, I liked most about it was I mean the variety of angles that the director attempted in looking at the construction and planning of this arts space. You know, you have the kind of requisite sit-down interview where, you know, Renzo Piano is pontificating, I think it's fair to say, about his, you know, theories about art and the public coming up with you know pretty beautiful aphorisms about what an art space can be and can mean. You'll have that, but then you'll have, yeah, exactly, this, I, I think shot with like, I wanna say GoPro or something yeah. like this, you know, uh, sequences that could be out of like a sensory ethnography lab sequence, just very like kinetic views on processes that you didn't even know you could watch in that way. Yeah. The installation of a smokestack being lowered from a helicopter, from the perspective of a smokestack coming down, you know, something like that. And then that Kandinsky thing. Yeah. Well, you're in a room and it's more or less the style of a candid camera yeah. where you're watching this kind of ludicrously pumped museum security guard who not only that, not only being like an instant sight gag, I mean, all respect to, you know, his fitness uh, r- regimen. Um, he is also, he likes being this little joker. Yeah he has this kind of proprietary feel towards the Kanditsky. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, like it's his, like you're coming to his home or something. <laughs> it's like, oh, you didn't know about that? Oh yeah, yeah, and that was just like one of the major, so this kind of like friendly, uh, semi-bro-y kind of um, yeah. talk to, to visitors who are coming in like one or two or three at a time, um, and that's that's funny. So yeah, it's this kind of, I, don't know, I mean, I guess kaleidoscopic is overused, but just in terms of the different types of views you're, you're getting. I, I think it had that in common with a couple of other films and especially maybe one film we'll talk about later and a different, totally different vein, but
1: um, yeah, yeah,
0: after Sherman, you know, also a movie that has tons of approaches I mean, that, yeah. in it. But this is a movie I think that you did a Q&A for.
1: No, not guess too. I actually did a Q&A for a film that this director produced, which was also in the festival. That's it. Which is where we headed. So, and Ruslan Fedotov was also uh, there. And yeah, I did the Q&A for that film. I think we talked about this out of IDFA, that film, but he, for the introduction, I mean, listen, uh, anybody that came in from overseas, I think, was a bit rattled. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly anyone from Eastern Europe was. I mean, I'll say that Pavel Lazinski read a statement before the Balcony movie, which was the official opening night film of the festival um, at the Missouri Theater. And read a statement, you know, denouncing the war and and asking for the U.S. to become involved greater than they they have been or we have been. And then uh, I went from that to Ruslan also reading a statement. And, uh, you know, I think somebody like Ruslan is is rattled and also just, you know, disoriented because he's Belarusian and is is not a supporter of the Putin regime nor of the sort of despotic regime in in, in Belarus, but then Mm -hmm. made a film in the Moscow metro system and here we are, You know, with all this this conversation about whether or not she's showing Russian films and whether or not we should be, in a sense, sanctioning cultural products, you know, introducing that film and basically trying to distance himself and all of his colleagues uh, from what's happening. Talking about uh, colleagues in Russia fleeing and exiling themselves temporarily, if not permanently, um, because of the situation, it was, I think, a useful thing to see a film a young filmmaker like this up there because there's no presentation or performance there it's just you know true trauma and disorientation and a privilege to have him in the room privilege to watch the film but you know definitely the the experience of watching that film I think was different than the experience of watching that film for us in November in Amsterdam yeah and he did in the Q&A talk about semi-apologetically or if not outright apologetically about how well, he did have other footage of Milizia and Polizia sort of being awful to people and other moments of like drunken and violence and things like that, that he, you know, tempered in the cut. It exist, exists significantly in the film, but he didn't want to make the whole film that. And he felt a little like maybe I should have included that because that's the stuff that's revealing maybe of, of where we are. I mean, I disagree with him, you know, because I feel like what he talks about that film as being is there's something resilient in in, in what he's doing about how even in this subterranean space that is, can be dreamlike, but also can be nightmare-like that there is, there is still a society that there is still kind of people falling in love. There's still um, other life that's happening. There's debate, all these things. The idea that he would take away any of those things in order to make a more overt condemnation of the police state there. I think wouldn't be right, you know, so I get I get him regretting that or, or I get him sort of bemoaning footage that he didn't include. But, I, you know, much like I don't blame a lot of the Russian population who has been living under this and living under misinformation for decades for everything Putin does. I wouldn't want to have a portrait of the Moscow subway system be entirely about us condemning the, their society.
0: Yeah. Well, in a weird way, it's almost shown to be more accurate than we knew in in November Precisely because of this kind of dual vision it has where, you know, for much or most of the movie, it's, you know, people making their way through the subway and kind of having like, sometimes like these heart to heart conversations about the the Russian soul uh, and that sort of thing. And then at the end, this kind of explosion of victory day celebrations. So in, in a way that kind of double view, double vision feels kind of true to the, what must be going on in, in Russia, where to a certain extent, you know, you do have people who have always been, you know, taking the the, the Putin line. Um, yeah. But you do have, you know, sometimes surprisingly strong resistance, um, surprising only because of the costs associated right. with that and the right. risks associated with that. And I guess in, in a way, those, <laughs> you know, those are some of the people we're seeing maybe in the beginning of the film, you know, in the, in the first half of the film, people going about the business who are, I love what you said about it being like a dream, but also a nightmare, like that maybe are forcing themselves to like somehow confront the nightmare. Um, yeah. That that's going on. I don't, I don't want to get all like <laughs> lyrical because the movie in and of its own is, is, is great. Yeah. Um, and it also just has such deft and gorgeous cinematography yeah. um, of, of that, that goes way beyond just, you know, the curiosity of, how nice you know moscow subway stations can be and just to think that not to push too hard on this but when we were seeing it in amsterdam in november what might have been more the dissonance that came to mind was the fact that oh here are people rubbing shoulders in a subway and
1: we're just about to experience omicron yeah totally
0: <laughs> which it now seems quaint
1: <laughs> the pandemic you know, news cycle and the Russian invasion of Ukraine news cycle was definitely overlapping at at the festival. And, and, and even like, it's like where are we headed? Like there are sequences of people wearing masks. Like he shot some of it during the pandemic and that's, that's in there too. And, and the balcony movie was made entirely before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And yet it reads as a pandemic film because it's made, you know, it's shot from a, from a balcony and there's this social distancing you know in, in implicit in every shot of the film and and yet mm-hmm. you know so it, it's an interesting moment where it feels like everything applies to where we are you know either either directly or implicitly or spiritually you know which is i don't know we're just we've been in such an activated state for a while that um, mm. it, it does seem like it's extending back into the past and, and bringing all that to the to the present
0: yeah and I'm, I'm glad you bring in uh, the Balcony movie because you were mentioning that in an interesting way that kind of taps into um, a bit of history at True-False and right. um, the past presence of, the, the I mean, the very strong Polish documentary tradition there. I, I wonder if you could talk a bit
2: about about that.
1: I think it was the second ever Neither Nor Sidebar at True-False. Um, the first year was something that I had an opportunity to work with the programmers there and, and doing a a sidebar on New York hybrid films from 67, 68. And the second year was this incredible sidebar of Polish filmmakers from those years and after, basically, I think it was extended more like late 60s to early 80s or so, but how some of the most uh, formally inventive and audacious documentaries that were a bit loose and free with the notions of exactly what was allowed in documentary came from Poland during that time. And a lot of them were in Missouri. So it led to this just incredibly richly dissonant experience of these mm. like 60-something and maybe even 70-something filmmakers uh, who had never, some of them barely been to America, and there they were in Columbia, Missouri, hanging out at the ragtag, talking freely amongst themselves, showing up at parties. You know, like there was, it was an incredible <laughs> experience. Um, and uh, Marcel Ozynski, um Pavel's, legendary father was there. So yes, seeing this many Eastern European filmmakers in a sense, you know, being in the spotlight because of what's happening in the world, it rhymed a bit with that year. Maybe it was 2014.
0: Maybe, maybe it was around there. I remember because I actually, it was just sort of a, again, this kind of utopian global connection of, of documentary fervor. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. As you were saying, this kind of confluence of documentary traditions and, and practitioners. Uh, that was really special. And yeah, and of course, pa- Pavel's continued his, his own filmmaking. I'm just trying to remember, what was the big feature he did before the Balcony movie?
1: Well, that's the one I mentioned before that we're showing on Sunday, which is uh, You Have No Idea How Much I Love You, which is uh, basically close-ups of three people in a, in a therapy session. Kind of just very gently, silently, quietly, mind-blowing film. <laughs> I yeah. Think. So yeah, he's, he's, he's the sneaky, and uh, this is like a very pithy thing to say but like he's like the the master of the, the sneaky deep or the kind of like you mm. think it's simple and it's incredibly complex um thing where yeah. the, the terms seem straightforward and yet what he actually gets out of it is 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 not
0: no that's something i i definitely felt with uh, watching uh, the balcony movie also watching it with an audience yeah as with so many movies it kind of opened it up in new ways where first people are kind of watching it as again kind of a candid camera premise you know but then it t- turning into something else and, and feeling the, the mood shift a little bit in, in, in the room, um, especially with this you know, one recurring character, not character, one recurring person uh, who keeps visiting before the camera, who starts off, I guess, panhandling, then gets a job that Pavel Lezinski helps by giving him a shirt for the yeah. ID photo. Yeah. And then it goes on from there, just in this little installments almost. One movie that comes to mind Capturing uh, U.S. history after Sherman is is a movie that grapples, you know, tries to get its arm around so much about uh, U.S. history um, through, I guess, the partly the personal perspective of its director, John Cesare Goff, whose father we see his father as a, a minister at a South Carolina church. You know, you, you learn as the movie goes on that there was a one of one of several uh, mass shootings and watching how he dealt with that and, and watching how the director, the filmmaker, he's thinking through race and history and his personal experience and how to react. I mean, it, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm being reductive because there's so many ways in for yeah. this movie. Yeah. Um, and the way it opens, of course, is with a, a, you know this rich look at uh, Gullah culture. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is a movie that I, I'm still kind of thinking, thinking through.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I am too. I... I'd seen this before the festival um, and think it's quite something, you know, I, I I like it and I think it's doing something very difficult and it's doing something very necessary and it's working through something before our eyes, which I always really appreciate work that approaches things that way. It's not like a, a set idea of what it's going to be and then, and then, mm-hmm. and then accomplishes that. It feels like it's working through itself. Um, this sort of film that is in league with other films the last couple of years that are, that I love, but also like our, Challenges inside and out, right? Because there's no, there's no right answer for exactly what shape a film like this should take, you know. Um, and it's not always evident as a result from the audience. You um, said there's a lot of ways in, but it's also at times can be difficult to to stay in because it is associative, you know. Um, and it's mm-hmm. trying to do a lot of things and it's using a lot of different modes, you know. You're you comp- comparing it to, yes, too. And I think in that in that respect, that I, I agree with that. You know, there's moments of the filmmaker having a conversation on camera. And then there's other moments where it's extremely like highly produced, stylized photography and other times it's archival. uh, Mm -hmm. And that's only, you know, a handful of what is a a, a sort of deep bucket of, of techniques and approaches. Um, But it's also kind of intentionally, and this is part of what I'm working through myself still after watching it uh, a few weeks ago, which is not about uh, evaluating in terms of, correct or not successful or not is working through some of its conflations and redirections, I should say, where like you're, you know, it's ostensibly in South Carolina, but we're also in upstate New York. We're, we're in the moment, but then we're also in the past. And then there's the mid past. Um, and then there's kind of issues of gentrification that are playing out before our eyes right now, you know, before the camera interspersed with, with, you know, incidents from, from years or decades prior it is making strong points about all these things being in the same the same area that it's exploring. But it's a ride that you have to take, you know, and exactly how it settles in and, and exactly how you choose to or allow things to rhyme, I, I think is sort of uh, part of the experience. So it's a real piece, you know, and yeah. I, I, I may be uncertain about exactly how it all fits together and, and whether it does. But yeah, I mean, it is definitely something to sit with.
0: Yeah. It's choosing the challenging um, structure and in a way after Sherman is definitely like, well, what about this? What about this? Yeah. I still don't know what I think about this. And for me, one of the most poignant parts of it is a single shot of his a reaction shot of him during a talk with his father about how did you deal yeah. with this mass shooting? And his father's just talking about forgiveness, basically. Yeah. Um I mean, unless I'm misreading, I I definitely, you know, we cut back to John Cesar face and to his reaction to that. And it's just this consternation I felt of like, I don't know. I don't know if that's enough for me. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I should do that. Um, That kind of crystallized that part of the movie for me and was part of those moments where, it's open you know it's like the movie is not saying you sh- you should feel this way about that you know uh, and i really like that about it uh, yeah and that said it, it's really tough to just on like an editorial level to uh, yeah tie all these things together and to some extent i guess maybe the movie's trying not to do that because the way it punctuates it with these headlines i guess from past newspapers i don't really know how far back maybe I should know the history of these, but that are read with this uh, whispering voiceover that sort of is is very unnerving and is always there to kind of, it's almost like this voice of the past or the voice of history, just coming back to remind you (laughs) that things that were in headlines 50 or a hundred years ago are still unsettled and have still uncomfortable resonances now. So all in all, yeah, I guess, I, it's a movie where I'm, I'm still working through in a way maybe the movie wants me to you know be working through if that makes sense
1: I'm so glad you brought up that exchange with his father because it feels like that's a, a very sort of personal intra family distance or, or disagreement over, over mm-hmm. or irresolution resolution over how to kind of process this stuff and I feel like that's the whole film in so many ways you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a processing as much as it's a presenting there's there's a lot of different elements that that, oh, yeah. that influence uh, what is how to process and what to process and I feel like in order to, to to come down on one side or to come down on forgiveness or to come down on rage would be incomplete you know so I think it's really mm-hmm. making an attempt to to get it all in there
0: yeah um, one minor thing that just from a kind of formal standpoint I I, I like that it uses. This sort of old school video superposition of yep. the sort that you could see like like the early 90s to, to kind of an interesting effect. I'm always interested in these moments in documentaries where they're revisiting or rediscovering methods that maybe were considered experimental at some time, but yep. now you're seeing them as a tool. And I thought it was kind of effective. He uses them to help frame or backdrop certain images in an interesting way. So, so yeah, that's uh, after Sherman, John Sesri Goff, uh, which was uh, a world premiere at True False, and I'm sure we'll be seeing more of that uh, down the road. Yes, I hope so. Was there another film that struck you there? I think we might get into some territory now of movies that, you know, you saw, I didn't see, et cetera.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, one one thing I, I guess I'll, I'll mention, which is a totally different direction, it's part of why I chose to see it, because... It was a whatever a, a somatic space that I kind of wanted to retreat to, which is Vedette, which is a film about a cow. <laughs> you know, forgive me, but I'm going to call it Third Cow, uh, because it is the third <laughs> cow movie we've gotten in the last year and a half. Uh, and and it is, it is that it is a pretty tight <laughs> portrait of a cow <laughs> named <laughs> Vedette, and it's shot in the beautiful swiss alps the french language swiss alps and it is is a close portrait of a cow and it is also i think and this was a little bit confusing to some folks i watched it with at true false familiar to me at least uh as being kind of a french agrarian documentary Mm -hmm. thing you know you know over the years we've shown a fair amount of Fid marseille documentaries um or cinema du real documentaries domestic product at first look and other you know, so like there's there's somewhat familiar with this, and it is, it takes a little bit of going with it because there's something a little bit quaint about it. There's something a little bit kind of, you know, down home. There's usually voiceover, which can be a little bit unwelcome for those who want kind of more of a sweet grass portrait of animals in the mm. wild. Um, This one, you know, guides you a little bit more than that. Um, But it's also a first-person work in that the two filmmakers are actually, they have a a home adjoining a farm. Mm. They basically are asked to watch over this aging cow, Vedette, for for a season. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, it is, it is, there are characters, we watch the characters deal with the cows, but then then the filmmakers themselves become, it becomes kind of diaristic in terms of their own relationship with the cow. So I enjoyed it. I don't, I don't think it's a, a perfect film. And I don't think it's for everyone in terms of its style or tone, but Vedette is a pretty, pretty cool cow. Uh, <laughs> she's, the, she's, she's the, the, the queen of the pack as it were. And you get to see how, that functions and then in each there's always one kind of alpha in the group. And you see her kind of like establish her own dominance um, and did so to an advanced age. And that at some point she loses dominance. And at that point um, to salvage her psyche, actually they lend her to the filmmakers to watch over. Um, and they have a, they have a little barn themselves where they watch over her. But uh, yeah, they're just, felt like for, for for her to be deposed as a queen um in her, I think late teens would be to relegate her to kind of massive depression. Um, so she becomes mm. a solo cow and the, the watchful care of unskilled uh, <laughs> non-farming couple. <laughs> um, so <laughs> you know and watching watching the Claudine, one of the filmmakers, befriend her when she has really no facility for it and no like firsthand, experience you know even touching the cow is very entertaining you know and and beautiful too
0: <laughs> it's like the the naive approach to the french pastoral film yeah i was just thinking the other day of cousin jules this is this documentary of about a couple of french farmers from I guess it's 72 or 73. Mm. Um, so yeah, an enduring tradition um, yeah. to, to return to these, the simple life, uh, I guess it were. Um, yeah. And then the other interesting thing, some reason I thought of like Sunset Boulevard when you're talking about this like queen who is, has to, you know, lose the spotlight um, <laughs> and become the solo cow. And I think the dead, if, uh, if if I'm not mistaken, actually means star in French. So, yeah. so her name is literally just star.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's is <yeah. laughs> funny. And it's beautiful. They all have this real relationship with this animal, you know, and the, and the, the, the farmer is this two women who, who run this farm, you know, are, are, like they're, they're, it's like they're the, she's the privileged daughter, you know, they're like talking about her as being better and, than the others and, and getting, yeah, we always give her a little extra food and it's, it's just, you know, Totally spoiled, <laughs> pampered animal who uh, can't stand not being in charge. After a while,
0: yes, stark contrast uh, to to second cow uh, cow, <laughs> uh, which is which is uh, actually coming out, I think, in about a month, and right. is I guess the industrial view, right. <laughs> the industrial experience of a cow. So a, a very strong contrast between these two portraits. A brutally, a brutal contrast between. Right these two cow experiences. Yeah. That's *Vedette*, And I mean, maybe I'll just say a few words here about a movie that called factory to the workers. Yes.
1: Which I um, meant to see and I didn't. So I want to know about it.
0: Yeah. This is, a, this is a movie that in outline sounds, you know, in a way, maybe like something like *Vedette*. it sounds like you've seen this movie before, or, you know, this whole tradition of documentary, Uh, about the experience of workers in a a factory. uh, You know, and and over the years, you know, different generations have done different looks at the collective attempts. And this sort of thing also obviously appears in in fiction films or in kind of hybrid efforts. You know, I thought of Arabian Nights. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I was unsure what this movie was going to be doing differently, but it's this extremely proficient verite look at the decline of a worker run factory in Croatia Mm -hmm. uh, and they make machine tools. And I guess apparently they, they took it over in 2005 or took it on, took it over. And there's just been a decline recently where it's a combination, I guess, of a manager who doesn't entirely know how to steer the factory through an extremely difficult time and, you know, with where they're competing globally. So He's making a lot of unforced errors as, as well. And he has, it's this portrait of like really loyal workers who believe in, in the cause and as well they might because they, you know, they, they part own the factory. It's, right. So they have a real investment in it. And it's, it's what a lot of times we talk about what the ideal could be, which is here is a factory where people participate, have a share, have a stake rather it being, you know, this top-down endeavor where it's just a revenue generator for someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's very melancholy. It's There's a lot of kind of suppressed rage in it. And it's from the perspective of someone who's sitting in on meetings or is even just sort of peeking around the corner when people are working or having chats, there's a lot of access uh, for especially one guy who's a foreman, I guess, or a sort of representative, it's a small factory. It seems even smaller just because it's, it's not like there are always like 50 people on screen, you know? So, uh, or you're even aware of all the people who work there, but it's just, you know, well-chosen details of moments of high tension and then no resolution <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's, there's, there's no quick solution to getting more accounts or to figuring out how to pay salaries. And there's a version of this movie that could be kind of more haplessly kind of wistful about it. It manages to be, you know, sympathetic to what they're doing without being un- unskeptical. Right. Um, so there's just, there's real heart to it, but it's a continual surprise. You know, I won't say it's like, it's a stupid comparison, but, you know, the, the comparison to like other movies where there's a strike or something, right. uh, other documentaries, there is that kind of built-in crisis this is just this kind of constant ambient crisis. Wow. Um, I think I saw someone tweet that this will give PTSD to anyone who was in a kind of like mismanaged, uh, you know, kind of declining organization of any sort. So in that sense, it, it's also not like this nostalgic view because this, this happens a lot. It doesn't have to be a machine tools factory right. for you to recognize what's, what's going on here and the frustrations. That are here. Um, and that's also because generations are overlapping here. You have younger guys working there. You have these older veterans who are still kind of trying to replicate their past victories mm-hmm. and, and younger ones who are like, I don't know how this works. I want this to work, but I don't know how. Anyway, I kind of talked more than I, I wanted to, which again is surprising to me because it seems, I mean, even the title, it's not like they called it. <laughs> I don't know, victory to the workers or, you know, it's, it's factory to the workers and, and you see how that plays out.
1: No, it's so It's, it's, it's incredibly appealing. And, 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 and I'm just interested in films with that setting, you know, but I'm also especially interested in films that, as you said, like kind of don't map itself onto a kind of ready-made dramatic arc of there being a strike or a political film that has an election, you know, to sort of take that out of the equation. I find way more interesting and, and illuminating, you know,
0: it's also a sort of movie where I think because of how it's structured, you end up having more of like an in, internal conversation with it. Uh-huh. You, you can kind of imagine yourself as one of those workers and say, like, oh, why, well, why is that happening? Why What, what are you doing? You know, uh, as, as you're kind of going along along with it, alongside it. Uh, I don't know. That was my experience, at least. I didn't feel like it was this spectacle of this declining industry or something like that, which is sometimes what happens with, you know, more than a few American documentaries about this kind of subject. Um, yeah. You know, you don't even realize until you see something like this, how there are, you know, like you said, there are these kind of preset narratives or narrative assumptions. You go into it that are conditioning how you're watching it and end up conditioning. I think what happens in the real world as well, you know? Um, yeah. So I don't know, not that this movie has <laughs> some sort of happy ending or, but I didn't take it as some like elegy for something that can never be and will never be. Yeah. Yeah, Factory to the workers, the directors, Sir John Kovacevich.
1: I will, I will note that um, though I did not get a chance to see it on the ground there at true false. I do know that American factory filmmakers, Julia Reichert and Steve Bognar were on the ground at true false and, and did see that film and and had a conversation with the director as well. So I was very curious. I wish I could have been the fly on the wall for that conversation. Yeah. So,
0: that would be fascinating to hear. Yeah, definitely. I think there is maybe one, maybe one more movie you, you want to talk about, or
1: yeah. So I, I saw a film that was a bit of a headliner, headline grapper out of Sundance, the territory, um, and was picked up by Nat Geo from that festival. And it's the uh, recipient of the tr- like True False doesn't have competitions, but they do have these kind of they have like a kind of a mid career retro called the True Vision Award which is Juan Pablo Gonzalez who made his first fiction film Dos Estaciones so they showed that and some of his older films and there is also with you know the True Life Fund which is basically a film that they basically raise money for the subjects of that film and so that was for the territory um and you know seeing the film in Colombia could certainly see why that was the choice. You know, it's a, a film about the uh, Amazon rainforest and a community of people, um, the indigenous community, um, who, and I, I'm definitely not going to say this correctly, but they I, I certainly bear mentioning the Wow uh people. Uh, and mm-hmm. they're a very small community that's, you know, um, population is not significant. And they, there's a territory that is their indigenous land, which is it's a lot to cover for a small number of people, but also a dwindling space because of encroaching development um, and raising of centuries old trees and foliage to sort of create farming property. And, you know, the, the Brazilian government at this point basically, in a sense, declares war on the indigenous people and leads a, a publicity campaign against them and uh, basically, in a sense, giving. Uh, the citizens feeling emboldened to be vigilantes in terms of murdering the indigenous mm-hmm. population, but then also just kind of on their own whim, knocking down trees and taking land for themselves. So topically, politically, there's a lot there. This, uh, the of indigenous group being recipients of, of any support for, mm-hmm. you know, the citizens of Colombia as well as anywhere else, um, who might be able to contribute to that fund is, is worthwhile, but it's, it's a really interesting film because it's a, though it's, obvious to me and to maybe many of us who's who the just side is here uh, alex pritz the american filmmaker who made it also sh- you know allows for different perspectives and shows the complexity of the local conflict that plays itself out um and it's not so clear-cut in terms of i think it's clear-cut morally and environmentally uh, because the, you know the, the effect this has on global warming is is, is direct um mm-hmm. With the with the dissolution of the rainforest the, the the heat of the the earth increases but the a lot, a lot of these kind of like a rogue figures are poor people who looking for you know comparing themselves to you know pilgrims in the America in America who are looking to kind of you know uh, take land for themselves so that they can start a better life um, and it's you know they're not entirely unsympathetic for for, for wanting to do so and so You know, that's a very difficult thing to do, I think, to have different sets of like opposing subjects and getting them to trust you as a filmmaker to tell their Mm -hmm. side. Um and, and he pulls that off. It's 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 quite something. Um so yeah, the territory is a film we're gonna hear a lot about over the next year because Nat Geo picked it up, but it's nice to see it early in its life and appreciating what it's doing, you know, before it becomes a name of the Twitter feed come next to Next January,
0: right? Yeah, I mean that—that's something that's interesting. So True False is just seeing somewhat earlier in
1: their life. I was just going to say, like, you know, the net—not not that we're talking about distributors, but Nat Geo had both the territory and Fire of Love out of Sundance, and both of those were in True False as well. So, like, yes. you know, for those who want to kind of prognosticate, there are certainly. The beginnings of films with 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 aspirations making their way post Sundance and, and those two certainly did. Mm-hmm. But I just want to say that we should note that the continuity of us returning to this place that we left with, you know, the fires beginning to rage in 2020 is wonderful. But there's also some some differences in the sense that there's, an, there's a different programming team at True Falls, and that yes. the festival that we left in 2020 was led by. The great, formidable Chris Bachman, and he's no longer at True False. Um, there's a new artistic director, Chloe Trainer, who used to head up uh, Open City in London. Um, and I think is a very, very, very fine uh, nonfiction programmer. And this is the beginning of the Chloe Trainer era, which is not just the beginning of a, of a Chloe Trainer era, but beginning of a, of a real shift in terms of, you know, none of the kind of founding members or early programmers at True False are are heading up at this point and at least at least in terms of uh, programming you know Amir George who's been there for several years is still on on the team uh, Eric Allen Hatch who had been at Maryland Film Festival was on board this year and there's one other program I didn't meet but Robin Robinson um, so like it's wonderful to see the continuity and see this like this is right. True false is back and this is a really good program and let's dive in. But I think it's also worth worth noting that there's a different team involved and and exactly where they go in future years will be interesting to track.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Glad to note that.
0: So that uh, was the 19th. I got that right. Yes. 19th. Yeah. 19th edition of true false. And yeah, we'll look forward to seeing what's happening with the 20th to come. I want to finish with just a couple of things. One is that uh, after this discussion, you'll be able to listen to an interview that Eric and I did at True False uh, with the director of We Met in Virtual Reality, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Hunting. Yeah. And that, <laughs> as you'll see, it's definitely on site. Uh, <laughs> or as you'll hear, it was definitely on site. Uh, you know, that, that was a movie, I, as I mentioned, as we mentioned in the interview. We saw the movie through Sundance and we both talked about it in our Sundance podcast, it was kind of this great moment, uh, which Two False is great for, of being able to just kind of sort of pretty informally sit down with the, the filmmaker and chat about it.
1: Well, it was one of these things where in a, on that previous podcast, we talked about how much we wanted to talk to the director yeah. <laughs> about how he made that film. And he basically sort of showed up in Columbia said, okay, do you want to talk? <laughs> I'll answer yeah. all your questions. So it was, yeah. a, it, was, it was wonderful to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. And then, and then the second thing, just as kind of signing off, I just want to repeat that the First Look Festival is coming from the Museum of the Movie Image. I don't know if there's anything else you want to, want to add on that.
1: Oh, I don't, want to, I don't want to steal the thunder. any thunder from, <laughs> from True False, but yes, our, our, our festival, as it followed True False in 2020, it now follows in 2022, and hopefully we'll actually get to complete this festival over the five days. So yeah, the 16th of the 20th, and there's some overlap in terms of some of those titles as well as other things that we've encountered over the last year um, at Ochoi and I, who I think has been a guest on the podcast.
0: Yes, just recently, just a couple episodes ago.
1: Edo and I were sort of the the, the main uh, folks sort of putting that together, but other folks on staff also made a significant made significant contributions and very proud of it. love, love having folks in and and what's nice is that uh, we are able to invite folks uh, into Queens again this time around. so it should be a nice nice set of days of folks watching movies and uh, enjoying being part of the festival again.
0: Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, we'll sign off there and you'll hear Eric and, and me in, in a second again, um, perhaps with some uh, rain sound effects. <laughs> but thanks, Eric. Thanks, And Nick. we'll talk again soon. We'll talk again in 20 seconds, actually. In the past. <laughs> and now our interview with Joe Hunting, the director of We Met in Virtual Reality. But first, a short introduction about the film. It's a documentary about a VR community filmed entirely within that world. Everyone appears on screen in the form of their avatars in an entirely synthesized visual environment. What's fascinating is how Hunting shoots the movie with the camera techniques and artistry of a so-called conventional documentary. As he'll explain, that means fly-on-the-wall observation, carefully chosen camera placement, and great care in choosing settings, tones, and so on. We spoke with Hunting about We Met in Virtual Reality outside the Ragtag Cinema, a central place for seeing movies and getting together during the True False Film Festival. Please note, you might hear Hunting refer to a few people from the documentary by their screen names, such as Dust Bunny, Toaster, and Jenny. Hello, welcome.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: As we were just saying, we were pretty giddy when we saw this movie uh, through Sundance, Um, and we had all these questions like, god i wonder how he did this i wonder how he did that i wonder you know what was the th- thinking that went into this and so also it was kind of cool that to hear that you had heard what we were just rambling about <laughs>
2: yes yeah i listened to the podcast right after the the premiere or as soon as you released it and it was yeah. one of my favorites we were just just talking about it um so yeah we will dive in and you can yeah. ask any questions i'm here yeah. outside <laughs> the ragtag in the cold yeah ready to embrace <laughs> all of your questions much
0: appreciated I think part of what we were fascinated by, Eric and I, was just that I just had a very vivid idea of, like, camera placement. For example, even though it's a virtual setting and presumably something like that, you could kind of theoretically put the camera anywhere. So I guess one simple thing I'm wondering about is how you planned out shots. And you know, are you able to put the Mm. quote-unquote camera in a place where you are not, or are you always like, is your avatar always where your camera Mm. is?
2: Well, firstly, yeah, the camera the film was shot on is a virtual camera called VRC Lens, and this camera allows me to shoot handheld, place it still in the world, or fly it as a drone. And so I and it, and I can do that very easily just with my controllers. And so I'm holding VR controllers in my hands, and on those controllers I have an analog stick, and that analog stick I can use it to change focus, I can use it for the drone control, and I'm switching between different menus and using my analog stick to control the camera in different ways, and I have two of these sticks, one on either hand, so I'm usually operating it with both my hands. When it comes to the decisions to compose and the different contexts of the camera placements, it was very dependent on you know what I wanted to capture. I think there's two very distinct approaches in the documentary, one that's observing and capturing moments in communities and big group events that happen in VR and then very intimate, more constructed interviews. When it comes to the community moments, I would often walk into a space and just very naturally try to react to what was happening and place the camera in situations that I knew I could capture them in wherever they moved. Because people move Constantly in VR and they're moving really fast and they're like running around and jumping around teleporting around So being able to position the camera in a place where I knew I could always have their line of sight Was kind of my first instinct when it comes to that and then the interviews there was a lot of location scouting. I could go in depth on in trying to find the right emotion for an interview and then Placing the camera down, usually still and and sometimes handheld and for different reasons. So there's a lot
1: I could go into there. As I said to you the other day, Joe, I would love to hear a little bit about the location scouting because um, I guess one context we should give it is that the entire world is designed by users. And so Mm -hmm. in theory, I guess, and you can tell me exactly how close this is to being reality, there's an infinite number of spaces that you could encounter or utilize yeah so i'm just curious about how you sift through those and what you're looking for in terms of a space that you might want to have a gathering for for the film absolutely
2: i think this is probably the biggest key to the way that the film was achieved but it's also the piece that i don't talk about very often so i'm glad to have the opportunity to to (laughs) talk about this i would spend often about two hours during production. Um, whenever I wasn't writing or shooting with the subjects or with different communities, traveling around different worlds in VRChat, the, the platform the documentary is filmed in. And the way I would do that is I you can open a menu in VRChat and on this menu you can see every world that exists. And I've been making films in VR since 2018, so I already had loads of worlds that I knew from memory and that I'd already logged as places that had really beautiful lighting and a very beautiful ambience with a lot of detail that the, the creator has put into them and so some worlds i just knew i wanted to to film in for example the salt lake world we see in dust bunny and toaster's dance sequence that is such a gorgeous open space and dust bunny and toaster have actually been there and danced there together outside of my intrusion and so immediately when they said that I was like we're filming in this world it's just gorgeous so sometimes it was the subjects that influenced my decision on the world but when that wasn't the case I would try to understand the narrative arc I was trying to shape with the subjects and use that to inform the decision on the world I think the best example of that in the film is with Jenny we meet Jenny and we get to know her in uh, this gorgeous like, lake view tower. She's up on the tower and she's looking over the lake and then she walks down the tower and sits down in this picnic area and we have a talking head interview with her. Just very, it's, it's very expositional and understanding who she is and what she does and it's an introduction to her community. At the end of the film and midway through, we're on the same lake, but it's nighttime and she's driving the quad bike And I feel that because it's the same world, but it's a different time of day, that was a very intentional decision to give the film a progression of time, a sense of time progressing. And at the end of the film, we finish on the lake with her. And suddenly that lake has a real presence and a real tangibility, I think, because it's set up in the beginning and you don't really think anything of it. So it's finding worlds that could tell the story in an environmental way and, worlds that would complement the avatars as well. And the, I could mention Boy's wedding dress when she's having her wedding dress fitted. Her wedding dress is soft and elegant and beautiful and just stunning. And so i intentionally found a world that was like a fairy tale and almost out of a Pixar film that was very soft lighting and was reflective of, like, say yes to the dress and to give it a real romantic quality and a, and a fairy tale quality. So it was all dependent on the world of the subjects and wanting to just exaggerate their world and
1: create a narrative from it. It was a really important decision. And I have three very quick follow-ups on all those. Um, when you're, one, one just sort of utilitarian, when you are, say, for, for that for that wedding dress sequence, um, are you saying, meet me at so-and-so oh. location? Or do you go together to that location? What does that look like since you're remotely connected oh, yeah. to meet up in that space?
2: oh yeah so in VRChat you can open a public instance of a world or you can open a private instance of a world and if you're opening a private instance you have full control over who is coming in and who is going out and so I would when it comes to the more intimate moments where I wanted control over our conversation or I wanted them to feel comfortable that no one else was going to you know wander around and <laughs> interrupt our conversation I would open a private world and invite them in and then they would just teleport in at a certain time um so it's it just through Im- invitations the other one is the
1: uh the salt the salt lake your context for that already makes total sense but i feel like there's another element there that i'm curious about that makes me wonder about how much this factors into some other motivations for locations mm. which is that that also to me was like a direct reference for, of bombay beach oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> which i know you've mentioned as an influence um, which had dance and documentary and yeah. was set at a location similar to that. That's so true. <laughs> so I'm wondering if if that was an element in, cho- in choosing location as well, if there was reference points or something, and of ev- evocation you wanted for oh. cinema or art or anything like that. Yes, absolutely,
2: but that was not one. <laughs> Funny enough, yeah, Bombay. I adore Bombay Beach. It's it's one of my favorites, and of course, that's on the Salt Lake. Uh, yeah, maybe that was an unconscious inspiration that happened. Yeah, but yeah, okay, it's good to know. Good to know. I'm sure that's going to come up again. Um, there are certainly worlds that I feel that the film is full of references, almost to me. Um, the biggest one is Jurassic Park. Actually, um, there's this moment where we're driving through these gates and we're greeted by this big dinosaur, yeah, yeah. and it, it it is completely reminiscent of Jurassic Park. And it is a film that's about emotion and intimacy and community. You would, it's it's not really a film that you'd find yourself in Jurassic Park in really, <laughs> um, and a documentary as well. Yeah, but you, you know, using that reference and and bringing those themes in was was really exciting and it paints vr in in a much more cinematic and exciting way so those moments were were intentional as well as i think there's a lot of moments that feel reminiscent to like when harry met sally and old romantic films in dust bunny toasters interviews and in the wedding scene as well there's more i'll keep thinking on that (laughs) one i'm sure that they'll have more more will come
1: to mind I, i think you're quite aware of orienting the viewer of the film in various things that we're seeing and doing. That, I think I mentioned to you the other night, there are infinite possibilities, but you're also very aware that you can't have the film just be filled with infinite choices that you orient us and I'm thinking about orientation in terms of because you're mentioning it now location is whether or not it was important to have certain touchstones certain places to go back to so that we have a sense of some kind of home base Um, because I know you're also doing that in terms of formal choices in terms of uh various, in fact, the whole kitchen sink of documentary film modes yeah. of observational and talking heads, whatever. So you're, you're, you're helping us with orientation in a space that might feel infinite. Mm. But I'm wondering about that in terms of uh, location, mm. too. Great question. Um, I think a, a consideration
2: that was constant throughout my location scouting initially, when I was first meeting the subjects, was what is their home? What's their home world? And a home world is genuinely a thing in VR chats. You have a home world that you will load into every time you come into the platform, and you can set your home world to whatever it might may be. And I was always considering what their home world would be, and I never asked them what their home world was because I was thinking in in the way that they would be seen on camera, in the way that their voice would come through on film, and how can I complement that and complement their avatar, um, their aesthetic, and their context? And so funnily enough, Jenny is painted she's always outdoors and even when she's indoors, there's this big open window, there's a big open door to the outdoors and you hear birds chirping. And to me she's she's has such a warm, friendly, welcoming tone and I really wanted her to feel outdoorsy um and her avatar is wearing dungarees and she has big like wellington boots to me she just is is an outdoors person she's not an outdoor person <laughs> at all she's a homebody completely but in the film i think her avatar and the way she speaks and just her she has so much energy and she needed space to move because she's always using her arms it just felt like she should she belongs outdoors jenny belongs outdoors but in fact she's she's not that um, but her avatar is so i think Finding a home world was really valuable in their avatars um, and the the way their fantasy characters Where, where would their fantasy character live um, I think and then another example of of grounding us in a home of, of, in a space is you know with dust Bunny and toaster's interview it's in this like moonlit desert we're introduced to that very early on and we come back to it throughout the film in the same same composition and using that very, just very formulaic structure, mm-hmm. it really helped ground audiences and relate them to a documentary that can be really unrelatable. Mm-hmm. I think my final point on that question is coverage. I gave the audience spatial awareness around everywhere that we went to. So mm-hmm. we would get into a world, maybe we'd be set up with the interview immediately, mm-hmm. but then there'd be some cutaways that would show the space in just different shots so the audience could have an understanding of the actual space and the depth of the space and the richness and the ambience and the sound of the space. I think without that it can feel vast and overwhelming and and infinite. So creating spaces and finding worlds that I could create spaces in was really valuable.
1: I think we we talked about that last time too like I just can't believe how many cutaways and how you're (laughs) shaping the space based on that Did you have a shot list for those scenes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did have cutaways written Yeah, but it was a real mix and the interviews absolutely did Um, I had a shot list of how I wanted to paint the space and I would go into a world before meeting with the subjects and I'd shoot tests with me um, with my avatar And just ambient shots to, you know, for B-roll, essentially. And then I bring them in and maybe we would work together on expanding that world. And we'll go and shoot. But it's so much easier to do that in VR. It's so quick and easy. I'm not setting up a camera, hitting record and going through the whole logistical process. We're just sitting down. My camera's already set up. We're recording. And then I say, okay, could you run up that hill do a backflip and then fly over to this hill and then run down and then come like high five the camera and they would be like okay and then teleport over there the cameras like I fly it with my controller and we just zooms over and flies through thin air and then we shoot it so the cutaways were, didn't feel like a hassle we just did them immediately and so I, I was very privileged in that way um, and it, you know it, so I shot tons of coverage for every scene so I had tons to work with in the edit. But then being careful around how I was representing the space was, was important. And constructing it in the film's world was very intentional.
0: That's sort of related to a question I had, which is just the kind of role of happenstance. you know. And, and you mentioned some of what you were shooting was fly on the wall. And what were things that came out of that, for example, that, that were you know, useful for you? Just things you weren't expecting? Um, oh. Or even did you have to cut out certain reactions to your presence sometimes? or? Um,
2: Yeah, yeah. There's actually a reaction to my presence which is very clear in the film where there's multiple but I think the one that is most distinct. I'm uh, I'm filming people entering Ray's classroom and someone comes running up to the camera and does a little cute smile and then someone comes up behind them and puts their fingers above their head and I love those moments feeling a sense of presence with the camera and having people look down the lens, looking at the audience, really brings you in. And, and, and it's really endearing, I think, especially when the avatars are so cute. But speaking of kind of spontaneous moments, I think those were the moments that really informed the edit compared to the conversations with the subjects, actually. Very early on in the production, I filmed New Year's. The New Year's sequence and New Year's was, it's always a really special time in VR and was extremely special because of the context of the pandemic. And so New Year's was one of the first sequences I shot and that became a kind of crux and I knew it was gonna be a climax or some sort of moment in the narrative of the film. And in February, after working with Jenny and Ray and the Helping Hands community, Jenny was covering Ray's class. And I spoke to Ray about the situation and Ray's brother passed away. And we, I asked Ray, how comfortable would you be in sharing this moment and this tragedy for the documentary because i knew that the helping hands community were his support system they were his rock in that time and that was exactly the message i wanted to present in the film and how vr communities are a support system in times of grief and in times of tragedy i brought ray and jenny after having a conversation about it and kind of very natural interview I brought Ray into a lantern world that I wanted to just give him a moment to pay his respect for his brother. And I also wanted the audience to have a moment to take a moment of silence for his brother and for that, that message to really sink in for people. I had no idea that in this moment he delivered just the most stunning prayer to the lantern and he blessed the lantern. He blessed his brother, his brother's memory. And I don't know ASL so I didn't know what he was saying at all, but I had Jenny there to support him in that moment and also she knew exactly what he was saying. And so after we shot that sequence, I reviewed it with Jenny and we translated it and it just became such a stunning moment of authenticity, but also the the message of the film and this really the story that I was really wanting to represent. And Ray is such an incredible person that I was so humbled and Grateful to have the opportunity to share that moment, and so I think that scene and that recording really became such a crux of the film. And I knew there was going to be a low point, a slow moment for the emotion, and crafting moments of humor and somber moments. I think that's really that that scene was what really informed the the edit and the timeline and and the way that the film was going to be presented. And I'm very grateful to share his story and and that for that to happen but it was the hardest thing I've ever filmed
1: most certainly once you acclimate yourself to this very you know unusual environment for a documentary film say at least or probably an unusual environment from a lot of people seeing the film what's striking to me is how much a work of a community it is um that it it would seem to be impossible to make this film if you're an interloper but the fact that you are comfortable in this community yourself and they're comfortable with you and we're not seeing human faces we're not gauging trust from context and scenes and interactions with a camera it's different yeah and yet still like get that sense i get this sense of like this is a, a complicit environment of people trusting a filmmaker and trusting a process mm. and you know I don't know the degree to which you had to beyond the fact that you were a familiar presence earn trust beyond that for making of the film because it feels like their trust was really there I don't know what work you had to do behind the scenes to sort of get certain things like that Ray scene um, is extraordinary but you know that's not doesn't seem like something that Ray was doing in his daily basis but he did that for you in that in that environment so getting there
2: yeah, right. I understand. It was a moment that was built from trust and a, a previous, already built relationship. I already had, as you said, a relationship and a real sense of community in the great whole VR chat community already with making short films. When the pandemic came, VR really became my second home. So I would go into VR every weekends, celebrate, and just hang out with with people. And those people really became, you know, part of we met in virtual reality. And so when it came to gaining access into stories and being honest and very truthful with the film that I wanted to to tell, it was just a lot of communication um, and a, a very concrete understanding of the language of VR and knowing when people are uncomfortable through the tone of their voice and really listening to someone in a wholehearted way, watching their body language and listening to their voice You don't have the privilege of seeing when someone is shaken because of their face. You have to be very delicate and very understanding that you don't know what's going on behind the avatar. And there's a respect that needs to be built there. It just came through communication of explaining what the film is. And then also spending a lot of time with the subjects outside of filming. I would go to Ray's classes every Tuesday and I'd speak to Ray after the classes and I would you know talk about learning i'm learning asl i would learn asl with ray and he would be my mentor and he would teach me and i was an active participant in that community and that goes for <laughs> even goes for the exotic dance club scenes um i got lab dances uh kind of uh, it was p- purely research purposes uh because i wanted to i wanted them to trust me um, and trust that I was not uncomfortable with what they were doing and they didn't have some observer coming in and wanting to just represent their community in, in, in a negative way. So it was spending time in communities and you know, it was putting myself in every situation to give people the, the understanding that I'm g- genuinely excited and have my own excitement for the community specifically it's just through communication and relationships and not going in asking questions in an interview and leaving but going in catching up talking about our lives talking about the pandemic talking about our emotions then filming for maybe 15 minutes and then coming out and then going and playing a game and it's not in and out it was always a long time um and thankfully you know I found subjects that I became friends with and, and that was important
0: um, we might have to <laughs> wrap, wrap up because we, uh, partly because it's raining. <laughs> I don't know if that comes across. It is, r- it is
2: raining. It is, it is yeah. raining. Yeah.
0: Unlike the virtual reality, we can't <laughs> control. Yeah, the why, why did we buy Why, yeah, why did we, we, we so should have done this in virtual reality. Yeah. This is so inconvenient. <laughs> it's raining. My hair is wet. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we'll take that out in post. It's a, um, but, uh, I mean, community and also just. Just hearing you talk about it, it's like it's all about the space being like a living space. So that feels so key to me as well. And that the comfort level, you feel it in the space, and that makes the space more real if that makes sense in a way you know when you can yeah. feel the trust in the space the space so yeah ends up becoming about spaces again which is what yeah. documentary is so often about and the distance between you and the subject and all of that so that's really interesting as well
2: yeah i've i've yeah. been having a few conversations about how the film has a general sense of love and you feel yeah. that there is a very collaborative spirit in the making of the film i'm so glad that that came through mm-hmm. um wasn't intentional but you know <laughs> that is the way i operate I think approaching a story even in VR is equally as valuable to really communicate authenticity and anonymity as well and knowing what identities are going to be revealed and what the subjects want to remain anonymous, you know, how much of themselves they want to be on camera. And if I caught them on camera prior to speaking to them, maybe I didn't know them or we didn't have enough communication, you know before, like the other main subjects of the film, then reaching out to them afterwards and explaining the full context of of what the film is. It's always been important to my process. I think filmmaking to me is not just about creating a film and the the technical process of completing, but it's more so learning about culture, meeting new people, and reflecting upon my own journeys in life as well. And that's true to VR as well.
0: Well, I think that's a wonderful place to c- conclude. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for talking about the film, and congratulations again.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank yeah. you for making me sit through the rain. <laughs> it's pouring down. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. It's, no, I'm, I'm so pleased that we were able we'll to speak.
1: You'll have that against us. You'll have that to take, take out against <laughs> This is against my us. vendetta, yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's been a privilege. Yeah. Um,
2: I'm so pleased that we got to have this conversation, so thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your
0: host, Nicholas Ripold. Please consider signing up at rapaul.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening.